Uh, Let me open us in prayer. Father, thank you for this time together this morning. We pray that your spirit would lead us into the truth as we consider uh, what it is that your, your word teaches and how the church has understood that teaching throughout its history. Father, we pray that, uh, that we would uh, not only be led into the truth for the sake of, of right knowledge, but that we would understand that even that right knowledge is for the purpose of holiness, uh, that we would uh, know the truth, and knowing the truth, we would cling to Christ, that we would have hope, uh, that we would love one another well. Uh, Father, that we would be more and more made like Christ as we await his second coming. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so uh, a quick uh, sort of run-up to how we got to where we are now and why with, uh, with everything that's been going on in Israel uh, over the last month or so. Uh, it raises a lot of questions. There are a lot of things that may be assumed, assumed by uh, the world around us, assumed by many Christians, uh, that maybe are not safe assumptions. They require more attention. Uh, In particular, there's a strong sense among evangelicals that the modern nation-state of Israel is somehow God's people and God's kingdom, uh, that that our stance as Bible-believing Christians should be a particular stance towards Israel. Uh, That's been long held by the majority of evangelicals. Uh, It's probably been a century of that being a significant viewpoint, and, uh, and we'll talk about that a little bit this morning. Um, we don't believe that Scripture supports that majority evangelical perspective. And what I wanted to do with this series of classes is help you understand a little bit better where that viewpoint has come from, why we believe it is not biblical, and what we believe is biblical instead. Uh, And so what we've done over the last few weeks is we've considered the biblical themes of a people. God has a people. That people is called Israel. Uh, And God has promised that people a place. Uh, And that place in the Old Testament was that, uh, you know, that area roughly equivalent to Palestine, Israel today, Uh, But the question is, is that what Scripture teaches was the eternal fulfillment of that promise, or was it just a symbolic fulfillment of something greater? Uh, And so we're going to continue to to unfold the answers to those questions. We've come today to the point where uh, I'm ready to begin explaining that viewpoint that's held by most evangelicals in America today. What is that viewpoint? How did it become the majority view? Uh, and, uh, and so what I want to do first is that viewpoint has a name. Uh, the name is dispensationalism. Dispensationalism is a system of theology. And, I, and so I want to talk about systems of theology first, just generally. Uh, system, systematic theology is a, uh, an approach that theologians take to the Bible, where they pick the Bible up and they ask questions, and they survey all of Scripture to find answers to those questions, and their questions and their answers are, are uh, there's extreme sensitivity to making sure that those questions and answers hold together as a system. 
so that there is no contradiction in the system. We know a couple of things about God that inform that process. We know that God does not err. And that His Word, the Scriptures, these are His. This is His Word. And therefore, it does not err. It does not contradict itself, which would be an error if it, in fact, contradicted itself. So we know that God does not contradict Himself. We also know that God is a God of order. That God is not a God of chaos. And as such, what God is doing in the world and and revealing to us in the Scriptures is His unfolding work of salvation and revealing His own character in that work and teaching us about ourselves and how we relate to Him. And He does this in a way that can be described systematically. It can be unfolded. We can take all of the the revelation that is ours in God's Word and we can in turn describe what that revelation teaches us. And one of the ways that we do that is in systematic theology. Systematic theology attempts to explain all of it, holding it together as one story, if you will, that is consistent, internally consistent, and it ought to, if it's a good systematic theology, be externally consistent. That is, it ought to explain the world around us if it's in fact true. Among evangelicals, there are three systems of theology competing. They, they contradict one another. They can't all be true. Three ways that theologians over the last, uh, particularly the last 100 years, some of these systems are older, some of them are younger. That is, they, they, they have not been around quite as long. Uh, there are three that today hold sway within evangelicalism. One is uh, the majority view, which is dispensationalism. We're going to talk about what that is in a minute. Uh, I would say the next most common is actually our view. It's referred to as covenant theology. Covenant theology. There is a third view that I think is in the minority uh, called New Covenant Theology. We're really not going to give that one much attention uh, in this course. Not only because it's, it's, it continues to be the, the minority view of the three, uh, but also because it's really, uh, it doesn't come into what we're talking about today. Uh, or, or over these, these courses, these classes. So, some people will push back a little bit. Uh, you know, systematic theologies are man-made, and it's just labels, and, you know, I, I just believe the Bible. Uh, listen, if you don't have a system of theology, with respect to your understanding of God's Word, you are lost. I don't mean you're not saved. I mean, you're just, you, you really have not properly understood God's Word. You, you, you must have an understanding of the framework of God's revelation, and that's what a systematic theology is. It's a framework uh, upon which we have come to an understanding of God's Word. A good systematic theology lets the Scriptures tell us what that framework is, rather than trying to impose one. We come to God's Word, and through a different kind of theological endeavor that we call biblical theology, uh, biblical theology and systematic theology are working together to come to a right understanding of God's Word. So I want to encourage you, if you are one who's tempted to say, yeah, systematic theology, it's 
you know, one of those things that people for whom theology is a hobby, they, they get into those and they pick one, but I don't have a system. I just, I just love Jesus and I, I trust his word. Uh, I want to encourage you to grow beyond that, okay? Uh, that's that's a, a legitimate place for you to be right now, but not a place I would encourage you to remain. You want to grow past that, okay? With all that in mind, we're going to consider dispensationalism today. I want to give you a really brief history of this system and then explain to you the, the primary uh, philosophies or commitments uh, among those who hold to this system uh, that leads to an improper understanding of who Israel is. So, uh, a quick history of the system. Uh, dispensationalism is a system that uh, really came into popularity with a man named Darby in the 1800s. Uh, he was a part of a Christian tradition referred to as the Plymouth Brethren. That was their, their name. And, uh, and he took this understanding of Scripture and uh, began to popularize it. Uh, and over the course of time, through things like prophecy conferences, because dispensationalism, as you'll see in a moment, very focused on prophecy and the end times, through prophecy conferences, through the, the publishing of things like the Schofield Reference Bible and later the Ryrie Study Bible. Uh, they, what they did is they, as all study Bibles do or reference Bibles do, uh, they provided uh, references and notes and, uh, and bits of information in your printed Bible to help you understand it. Uh, as dispensationalists, of course, all of their references and notes were intended to point you towards their understanding. Uh, and they were extremely popular. In the early 20th century, liberalism, theological liberalism, was creeping into the church. And there were two uh, answers to that on the part of Orthodox Protestants. One was a movement that we, we referred to as fundamentalism, and the other was confessionalism. Uh, answering uh, the, the difference between these two is that some believe that the best way to stand against liberalism, theological liberalism. Theological liberalism says this is not the very word of God. It is not inerrant. It is not authoritative. It's just a record of what some people believed at some times, and there's some good stuff in there, and there's some wrong stuff in there, and we get to decide. We, today, the church present, will always be the arbiter of what is true and authoritative in this word, and that answer will change over time. That's liberalism. Jesus Christ is not the very Son of God, and he did not die on the cross for you. He died, you know, in your, he didn't die in your place in order to satisfy the wrath of God. Liberalism says he died just as a good example. This is what somebody does if they love the people around them. They will even die for them. And Jesus did that for us uh, as an example to show us how to love one another. That's all they believe about Christ and the gospel. He was just a man, and you are not going to be saved merely by trusting in Christ. There's some question as to whether there even is an afterlife among theological liberals. Those who do believe in an afterlife believe everybody's going to heaven. Uh, there is no actual hell, or if there is, it's not in any sense permanent or really that bad. 
and so this is theological liberalism, and as it crept into the Protestant churches in America in the late 19th and early 20th century, there was a response against it among those who continued to insist that this is, in fact, the very Word of God. It is inerrant and authoritative, and that together with the creeds throughout history and everything that Scripture clearly teaches, Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God and Savior of sinners, and that He died in our place as a substitution for us to satisfy the wrath of God. Those people who held to that responded to this liberalism either by saying, let's choose the handful of doctrines that absolutely cannot be given up. And let's put our stake in the ground on those doctrines and give up everything else if we have to, but we will not give these up. That's fundamentalism. Fundamentalism is attractive because it's simple. Uh, There are five fundamentals of the faith. If you will simply insist on them being true, nothing else really matters. Uh, You you don't have to work that hard to develop a faith uh, that is any any more um, uh, robust than that. Simply insist on these five things. Cling to those and you can be confident that you will go to heaven. And in fact, you can also discern between who will and won't, because anybody who denies any of those five is not a Christian. That's fundamentalism. Again, it's attractive because it's rather simple. The other response to liberalism was confessionalism. Confessionalism was led, it was a smaller movement, and it was led by J. Gresham Machen. Uh, Machen, who was a Presbyterian, uh, was uh, and, and, and insisted as the Presbyterian Church departed the faith, embraced liberalism, he insisted upon uh, the, the truth of God's Word, its authority, its inerrancy, and, and all of those doctrines of the Christian faith that have been held for so long. As he insisted on those, he was eventually kicked out. He was defrocked. He was a minister in the Presbyterian Church, and was, uh, he was stripped of his ordination, and removed. And when he did, he started a new denomination, which continues today. Some of you are familiar with it, the OPC, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, a sister denomination to our denomination, the PCA. Uh, he also started a seminary. Uh, he was a faculty member at Princeton uh, Theological Seminary, and when he was removed, all, all of this, I'm obviously significantly shortening the story, But roughly around the time he was being removed, he also started a new seminary because Princeton Seminary also abandoned the faith. And so uh, he started a seminary, Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, right? So that was the other response. Confessionalism uh, is a robust answer to liberalism. It has the disadvantage, though, of being a little, requiring a little more effort on your part to understand and embrace. And as such, it was not uh, well-suited to popular movements. Uh, And so it it becomes the minority response to liberalism, theological liberalism in the church. Fundamentalism uh, takes as its system of theology dispensationalism. Fundamentalists and dispensationalists are almost, on a Venn diagram, completely overlapping. And among those who held to dispensationalism, they insisted, not not necessarily their writers, their theologians, but popularly they insisted that if you 
were not reading the Bible the way they read it, that you, at best, were not a good Christian. Uh, and in fact, probably were not a Christian at all. Because their approach to the Scripture, we'll talk about this more in a minute, is called the literal approach. Uh, and they insisted that anyone who didn't read the Scriptures literally didn't actually believe what the Scriptures were saying. That they were just playing free and easy, being loose with the text, making the Bible say whatever they wanted. They weren't actually submitting to God and His Word. Okay? Now, a couple of things before I get into dispensationalism and what they believe and teach. First of all, always good to let them speak for themselves. Okay? Uh, this is a book called Dispensationalism. If you find an older used copy, it might be titled Dispensationalism Today. Same book. Uh, although over time, he... he added to it and edited it and, and updated it as, you know, theology continued to wrestle with things. Charles Ryrie, the same Ryrie as the Ryrie Study Bible, is the author of this book. If you only read one book on dispensationalism, this is the book to read, okay? Uh, Ryrie, by the way, says in this book that if you're not reading the Bible the way they are, you, there's a good chance you're not a Christian. You don't really believe the Bible. Ryrie is one of their leading thinkers and uh, theologians. The other is the, uh, the very, very aptly named Pentecost, Dwight Pentecost, uh, Things to Come. This is also a primary text for understanding dispensationalism, Things to Come by Dwight Pentecost. Dwight Pentecost was once asked in class if he'd ever thought about updating his book, and he said, I don't know, have they updated the Bible? Uh, and uh, of course the answer is no, and uh, Dr. Pentecost has not updated his book. Uh, Dr. Pentecost, when, uh, so I'm, I'm a Dallas Theological Seminary graduate. Dallas Theological Seminary is the city on a hill for dispensationalism, the Mecca, right? The, the great fortress of dispensationalism. Uh, that's, the, that's where dispensationalism found its intellectual center in the 20th century. Uh, and uh, under Walverd, John Walverd, the president for 50 years, uh, under Walverd, they became the defenders of dispensationalism in evangelical Christianity. And uh, so that, those are my bona fides. Uh, I, I'm a, a product of their seminary. I've been to the seminary. I've received uh, the finest instruction in dispensationalism that you can receive, Right. And I, I mean that. Uh, it, they, there are other places you can go, Denver Seminary and, and other places that are dispensational institutions. You'll find most of the faculty at those institutions are Dallas Seminary graduates, right? Dallas is the center. Uh, when I was a student on campus there, Dr. Pentecost was still teaching. He was in his 90s. Uh, he drove a Corvette, which was absolutely hilarious to see on campus because he got around like a 90-year-old, except when he was in his Corvette. Um, <laughs> And so, uh, and, and so this is a good spot for me to stop and tell you, uh, to a person, my professors at Dallas Seminary loved Christ and believed his word. I deeply disagree with their conclusions, and I think there are some serious problems with their system. But as you hear me criticizing the system, I want you to also hear me say, I believe these are brothers and sisters in Christ. Okay? Um, it is not my intention 
uh, even though I, uh, I'll be a little lighthearted about it sometimes and we'll, we'll have a laugh, it is not my intention to be disrespectful to them uh, or to in any way call into question their commitment to God's Word and to Christ. Okay? So I want you to hear me say that. Uh, Dr. Pentecost was, a, uh, was without question a man of God. Uh, and I had many professors that I would say that about. Amen. Yeah. Yeah, at, at best, yeah, at best we can characterize it, but you shouldn't draw bright lines. The, the identity of fundamentalist and dispensationalist is not strictly denominational. Uh, you'll find, so dispensationalism, if there's a denomination that is the dispensational denomination, it's a sort of denomination called the Bible Church Movement. So Emmanuel Bible Church across the interstate from us here. Uh, belongs to that tradition. Their system of theology, they, they exist as a church intended to promote so that, that system of theology, dispensationalism. Uh, many Baptist churches were dispensational and continue to be dispensational. Uh, I would say those are the, the two places that it's most represented. But it's profoundly uh, integrated into the popular culture of evangelicalism. For example, uh, for those of you who are older, you may remember in the late 70s, early 80s, movies that would be showed at like Sunday Night Church, uh, 666, The Mark of the Beast, A Thief in the Night. Those are dispensationalism being uh, uh, dramatized, right? Uh, more recently, although increasingly you still have to be older to remember it, uh, are the, uh, the series of books that seem to have absolutely no end. Uh, well, what were they called? Left Behind. Left Behind. The Left Behind books. And I, they made a film or two, I think, of, uh, of the Left Behind books. Last time I checked, they were up to like the 25th installment in the Left Behind series. I, I'm sure they're done by now. But uh, this was in the late 90s, early 2000s. Uh, Left Behind is doing the same thing. It is popularizing uh, that system of theology. Again, if you're old enough to remember the late 70s, early 80s, you probably, uh, and if you, particularly if you were an evangelical at the time, you might remember a book being published called The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey. Uh, Hal Lindsey stole Dwight Pentecost's notes and uh, wrote a book. Uh, they, they still roll their eyes about that today at Dallas Seminary. Uh, I say that. They did when I was on campus, which is also approaching 20 years ago. Um, but uh, these are the... He was a student there. He was. He was a student there. Yeah, he was, he was Pentecost, one of Dwight Pentecost's students. He took his class notes and just turned them into a book. Uh, he plagiarized deeply, deeply plagiarized Dwight Pentecost. Uh, but Hal Lindsey's book, The Late Great Planet Earth, together with the cultural moment of the late 70s with Carter and inflation and uh, and the popularity of these, uh, these like schools of survival, you could go out in the woods and learn how to survive and be a kind of a paramilitary person 
uh, all of this in the late 70s and 80s, right? It felt like the world was coming to an end. So the late great planet Earth, I mean, it, the timing on that was fantastic. Uh, and again, all of these things worked to popularize this system of theology to the end that you might not even belong to a denomination that is itself dispensational, and yet that, that might be the theology you were being taught. Many people were raised uh, to believe this system of theology, but the, the words might not have ever been used. So if you believe, for example, that there's going to be a rapture where Christ returns and all of us are caught up into the air and then we all go to heaven, that's actually dispensationalism. Uh, we would argue that Scripture doesn't teach that. Uh, if you believe that there's going to be a seven-year tribulation when Christ comes back, that the church, having been removed from the earth in the rapture, there's going to be a seven-year tribulation... Uh, that's actually dispensationalism. Nobody in the history of Christianity believes that but dispensationalists, right? So uh, all of which is to say you might have actually been taught some dispensationalism without realizing it if you grew up in evangelicalism. Uh, our covenant theology does not embrace those things. Uh, and in fact, so the PCA was formed in 1973. It's never been allowed for a minister uh, a ruling elder or deacon to, to hold to dispensationalism. If that's your understanding of Scripture, then you're not permitted to be ordained in the PCA. So you, you won't find that in the PCA. If you do, it's, it's a very, very strange anomaly. Okay, so let's talk about some of the primary principles of dispensationalism. Dispensationalism uh, comes to Scripture and describes their interpretive principle uh, how it is that they read and understand Scripture, the most important element is literalism. Uh, this is the language used by Ryrie in his book. Uh, he goes on at length about the importance of reading it literally. That's his word. Now, it's not that dispensationalists don't understand that language uses metaphors and things like this, but they believe that it has to be, you've got to prove from the text, that it's a metaphor. And if you cannot prove that it's a metaphor, it must be read literally. Uh, and where that comes into play most for them is the identity of Israel. Uh, both Ryrie and Pentecost argue exhaustively that the word Israel in Scripture can only refer to the ethnic people, the Jews. That that word cannot refer to the church ever. It's not ours, it's theirs. So when God makes promises to Israel as a nation, those promises belong to the ethnic nation of Israel only. They're not given to us. There are promises for us, us being the church. There are promises for us, but they are not the same promises. So the formula that you'll hear them use is that God has an earthly people, the Jewish people to whom he has made earthly promises, which will receive an earthly fulfillment. And God has a spiritual people, that's the church. And to the spiritual people, he has made spiritual promises, which will receive a spiritual fulfillment. That's, that's their way of expressing it. Uh, 
the way this works out in the end is there are the new heavens and the new earth. The church will spend eternity in the new heavens. And Israel, the ethnic people, will spend eternity in, on the new earth. Right? This is, this is absolutely the heart of dispensationalism, is this distinction between Israel and the church. God made promises to Israel as a nation, and he will fulfill those promises literally, and that is the end of those promises. That is, there, there is no intermediate fulfillment. There is final fulfillment of the promises. In other words, Israel on the new earth will actually inhabit the same land that was promised to them in the Old Testament because that was the promise, and it must be read literally, okay? So, literal interpretation, and a, you, you've already begun to hear it, a radical discontinuity between Old and New Testaments. That is, that the Old Testament is for the Jewish people, for Israel, national Israel. Are there promises of God there that anticipate the church? Yes. Uh, is Christ anticipated in the Old Testament? Absolutely. Uh, but in fact, they believe that the, the period of history that we are in now was not necessary and only anticipated in the Old Testament as a possibility. They refer to the period of history that we are in now as the church age or uh, more consistent with them uh, they refer to it as a, um, uh, a parenthesis in history. In other words, God had a plan. And had that plan worked without failure, there would have been no church age. The promises made to Israel would have been fulfilled and it's over. But because Israel rejected Christ, there's this parenthetical period in history referred to as the church age. And they're not arguing that God didn't know that would happen, right? They're, they're not suggesting he was surprised or he really hoped it would work out, but it failed and oh well. Uh, they're, they're not arguing that. They believe that God is infinite, eternal, and all-knowing, right? But nonetheless, this was not necessary. Uh, the Old Testament then is primarily for Israel. And when we do things, which we do in covenant theology, we'll cover this in a future lesson, but when we do things like say that, that circumcision in the Old Testament was a covenant sign, and that covenant is still in effect, and the sign has changed and is now baptism, they cry foul. Nope, you can't do that. That's for Israel. Circumcision's for Israel. It's not for the church. So you can't import it into the church in the New Testament. There's this break between the Old and New Testament, between the period prior to Christ and the period after Christ. We, we refer to it, we, not, not dispensationalists, at least I've never heard one do it, we refer to it though as a radical discontinuity, their view, because they insist upon it and press this discontinuity so far. We acknowledge some things have changed. Circumcision is not circumcision anymore. The sign continues, but the sign has changed because of Christ and who he is and what he's done. 
but we, we insist on some continuity between the Old and New Testaments, uh, particularly with respect to who the people of God are, right? That there is one people of God in all of redemptive history, not two. There's one people of God, and that one people of God runs through Old and New Testament, and because Christ is at the center fulfilling the Old Testament, he holds all together, right? So this radical discontinuity is a, uh, a, a significant feature of dispensationalism. Uh, and then um, the, the last thing I'll, I'll point to is the, the central fact in history around which the system is built. Uh, the system, dispensationalism, is built around... Uh, their eschatology. That is, they've decided what the eschatology is. Eschatology is the study of last things. And for them, their eschatology is all future. Now you say, well, of course it's future. It's eschatology. It's last things. We're not there yet. Uh, if you grew up Reformed, if you grew up in the Presbyterian and Covenantal tradition, you understand that, that eschatology began in the garden. But for them, eschatology is entirely future. It's the, the study of the very end, the very last things. And they've settled those questions first, and then their system is built upon the answers to those questions about the end. They read the Bible with that literal interpretive principle. They focus on the end, and having decided what the end will look like according to their literal interpretation, they, they build the rest of their system. That stands in contrast to covenantal theology, which places Christ at the center of its system uh, and builds out our understanding of Scripture there. Joseph. How do they justify reading Revelation in such a literal way when that type of apocalyptic literature was culturally, like, like look at Daniel. Like it's, it's obviously not literal. It's, a, it's like a metaphor for the, it's the same kind of figure in Yeah, in part, they're going to acknowledge that some of those things are symbolic. But they're, they're going to, to significantly limit how much of it they're willing to accept as symbolic. Uh, and they will talk about Revelation being interpreted literally. Uh, they will talk about our view in the same incredulous way you just talked about theirs. <laughs> right? They will say, how can they read it so symbolically? They just get to make up whatever they want, right? Um, and so uh, it, it's, it really is, it comes down to that question. When we are in dialogue with one another, no matter what particular part of systematic theology we're discussing, what's always at root is our interpretation of the, of the Word of God, right? And whose principles are uh, more consistent internally and externally. So, yes. They make a fine distinction. They say some of the promises made to Abraham were obviously national promises. Those are only for Israel. There are some other promises made to Abraham which are broader than the national promises. And those promises are for the rest of us. Yeah, 
they read the word Israel literally, and where those promises are to Israel, they're national. So, in other words, once again, in our liturgy this morning, your assurance of pardon came from the Old Testament. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He's cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. That's not for you. You are not Jerusalem. You are not Israel. Those promises are for them. They're not for you. Now, your promises may look a lot like this, right? It's not that they're denying that there's forgiveness of sins for the Gentiles, for the church. It's not that they're denying that Jesus Christ is our Savior. What they're denying is that that verse gives you any comfort because you're not Israel, and that verse was written to Israel. They do, they do, which at the time, of course, because uh, I, I, was, I was little and raised in this tradition, and, and I remember we, we had uh, on Sunday nights the children's ministry, it was called Teach-A-Tot, um, and, uh, and I can remember going to Teach-A-Tot and, and singing Father Abraham, it was one of our favorites, we sang it all the time, but in retrospect, it does call into question how they might have felt comfortable singing that. Um, because if Abraham is my father, then I am a part of Israel, right? So anyways, um, I want to illustrate to you how, uh, how dangerous the doctrine is by recounting for you something one of my professors said to me. And I want to be really clear, because once I say it, you're not going to listen to me anymore for a few seconds. You're going to be struck so dumb with disbelief. So I want to say it now while you're listening to me. <laughs> This is not representative of what all dispensationalists believe, okay? This is not a formal part of the dispensational system. But what this professor said to us in class is actually very consistent with their system, and, and I understand how he got himself backed into saying it. Uh, it was a class on the Gospels. In the Gospels, Christ offers the kingdom of God to Israel. Uh, that's, that's just, it's there in the text, you can see it. He talks about the kingdom, kingdom is at hand, the kingdom is for you. Uh, they, they believe that that kingdom that he promised, he was making a sincere offer to them, and if they would have accepted him as their Messiah, that kingdom, which is the millennial kingdom, would have immediately been ushered in. They believe that there is a future, literal, thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth after Christ's second coming. And that millennial kingdom was offered to Israel in Christ's earthly ministry. And if they hadn't crucified him, that kingdom would have immediately been ushered in. The millennium would have begun. The, that raises a question, and it was asked in class. There were about 60 of us in class. One of my classmates raised his hand and said, Prof, if they had accepted Christ as their Messiah, what would have happened to the crucifixion? And the professor said there would have been no crucifixion and no need for one. Now, I, I want you to understand, I followed him into the hallway after class. I said to the professor, this is what I heard you say. I'm going to talk about it with a lot of people. And I want to make sure that what I tell them you said is a fair representation. 
I heard you say that if Christ's offer of the kingdom had been accepted, there would have been no crucifixion and no need for one. And the professor said, that is exactly what I said. Now, I'll have you know, that was the moment. I'd been wrestling with dispensationalism for a while. That was the moment I declared myself not a dispensationalist. We were in a long hallway, and before I got to the end of the hallway, having walked away from him, I had decided I'm not a dispensationalist. Because his answer, shocking as it is, and, and as inconsistent as it is with anything you'll read in any of the dispensationalist books, it's consistent with dispensationalism. He, he got cornered by his argument in class, such that he, rather than saying, I don't want to answer this flat-footed, or maybe, maybe I've misunderstood Christ's offer of the kingdom, he was actually willing to say in class and, and put a stake in the ground on it in the hallway, the crucifixion wouldn't have been necessary if they had embraced him as Messiah. That's shocking, right? That's, that's heresy. I won't say that dispensationalism is heresy. I think it's wrong. But in none of the formal teaching would I suggest that it's heresy. Some have in the past. Uh, I don't share that view. I think we need to be really careful labeling a system of theology heresy that holds to uh, the Scripture as inspired and inerrant, and Christ as our Savior. But that statement that he made was heretical, absolutely heretical. And I didn't want to have anything to do with a system where that statement made any sense at all, whether it was the system's view or not. Now, it wasn't the only thing. There were a lot of reasons that ultimately I walked away, and, and I can summarize all of them by saying this, that the claims I heard them making in class as they taught dispensationalism simply did not conform to God's Word. I just kept running into things that they, they weren't just saying in class, but they say in their books, and they insist upon as the only acceptable interpretation, and they weren't accounting for so much of God's Word. So, these are the principles that underlie dispensationalism. What do they believe then? Uh, they believe that history is marked by periods known as dispensations. Okay, this is where they get their name, dispensationalist. Uh, for the most part, because they, there's not absolute agreement over the history of this tradition, uh, but for the most part, they hold to seven dispensations from creation to the new heavens and the new earth. Um, so one dispensation is Adam and Eve in the garden before the fall. There's another dispensation from the fall until Noah. Uh, there's a dispensation from Noah to Abraham, a dispensation from Abraham to David, etc. Right? The last dispensation will be the millennium, which is that future thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. So they hold to these dispensations. They, there is, you know, what I'd love to do right now is give you a definition of dispensationalism that dispensationalists can all agree on, but they can't. Uh, and, and they'll even tell you, when you, I mean, you would think a book titled Dispensationalism would establish definitively the definition of a dispensation. Their entire system's built on the idea that there are these dispensations and that this is how God works in history. He opens the chapter defining dispensationalism by saying there's, there's not really a lot of broad agreement. 
Here's a definition, but it's not really sufficient. We've got to say more. And here's the definition, but not all of us agree that this is the best definition. Some disagree with this fact and some with that fact, right? In fact, when I was on campus as a student, there were three competing views of dispensationalism that broke along departmental lines, and there was deep animosity between them. Uh, there was classical dispensationalism, which is what you, you really get in things to come. This is the dispensationalism of Darby uh, and others, all the way, Ryrie initially, all the way up into the 20th century. In the 70s, uh, they began to recognize there were some some difficulties in the system they needed to account for, and so they uh, adjusted their dispensationalism, and that's represented by Ryrie, and that's revised dispensationalism. That's their term. And then in the 90s, uh, the uh, two, two dispensational theologians, uh, Craig and Block, uh, Craig Blazing and, uh, and Bach, Daryl Bach, uh, one at Dallas Seminary and one at... Um, uh, at Southwestern Theological Seminary, the, the Southern Baptist Seminary in Fort Worth, they got together and wrote a book called Progressive Dispensationalism, where they said in the book uh, that they, they believed that the system they were laying out in their book was more faithful to Scripture than the previous versions, which, as you can imagine, really upset the people who hold to classical and revised. Um, in fact, I, I think it's uh, Ryrie in his book there really gets worked up about it. Um, and these three systems were competing with one another on campus, which was pretty confusing as a student to go from one to another. The thing they're revising and progressing on is the question of the relationship between Israel and the church. It can't be sustained biblically. If Israel and the church are not two separate peoples of God, there is no dispensationalism. It is the, to, to borrow a phrase from a professor that I'm friends with, it is the sine qua non of their system. That without which there is nothing. If Israel and the church are not two distinct peoples in God's economy, dispensationalism is a wreck. And the best way I can explain the history of dispensationalism is they've got Israel and the church, and classic says, Neither the twain shall meet. And Revised said, well, they're, they're going to be one people at some point in eternity, but God doesn't tell us when. It's, it's way after everything. And the progressive dispensationalist said, no, no, we, we can say when they're, they become one people. Uh, it's, it's in the eschaton. It's in the last days. Between Christ's first coming and his second and everything that happens then, and meanwhile, covenant theology has always been zipped all the way up and said they are one people of God, so that progressive dispensationalism is, is almost closer to covenant theology than it is classic dispensationalism. There are Reformed theologians blurbing on the back of the progressive dispensational book, saying, this is good. You know, we don't agree with all of it, but they're doing well. Um, I will tell you personally that I don't believe dispensationalism will even exist as a system of theology in 50 years outside of the academy. It's, it's just not sustainable biblically. They believe that there are these seven dispensations, these two peoples of God, uh, and that the church age is a parenthesis. So, By dispensation, you're talking about God works in different ways in different periods, right? 
Yes, God works in different ways at different periods. That's, that is a brief, accurate, as far as it goes, definition of dispensationalism. It's not sufficient because the Westminster Confession of Faith is happy to use the word dispensation. The, the difference isn't that we believe that God works a certain way in certain periods of history. It's that they've built their entire system around it. That is the architecture. And they divide those dispensations and ultimately go on to define them more particularly in ways that we, we don't believe are biblical. Yes? So, the church age is a dispensation? Uh, yes, it is. Well, it is a parenthesis. Look, I'll be honest. If you had a dispensationalist up here answering the questions, he would struggle to answer some of the, but this sounds logically inconsistent. Uh, I was taking a final exam at Dallas Seminary uh, in, in the Bible Exposition Department, which is a, that department is a classical dispensational department. And uh, the exam uh, one of the, the exam was on uh, the book of Revelation. And, uh, and so there's a lot of end time stuff on the exam. And one of the things that they did is they took all the events of the end times and they, they listed them out, out of order. And we had to number each one of them uh, to indicate the order that they would occur in. And one of them was the rapture, but, the, but there was also one that was the second coming. It was a departmental exam, which meant all the professors in the department sat down and wrote the exam together and voted to approve this as the final exam that would be used throughout the department for this course. Well, I was confused because I, for them, the second coming of Christ is not the, just the rapture. Christ comes again at the end of the seven-year tribulation, and his second coming is both. So the second coming of Christ is the rapture and his return. All of that together is the second coming of Christ. That's what they had taught us in class. So I wasn't sure how to situate these things chronologically when the rapture is the beginning of it and his return is the end of it, but they're all part of the second coming. Uh, and I went up and showed it to the professor and he couldn't sort it out either. So he announced to the class that they wouldn't be taking any points off for that question. Right? There's, there's just, there are some really difficult logical inconsistencies that even they, when questioned in class, couldn't give answers for. And so um, I'm over time. Uh, we'll, we'll kind of briefly come back to this uh, to give you time to answer or to ask questions next week. Um, and then we'll move into covenant theology. Let me close some prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, and we thank you that, uh, that you have been at work in the world throughout history, revealing, uh, illuminating the hearts and minds of your people as we come to this revelation, this scripture. Uh, we pray that you would continue to lead us in the truth. Where we may be in error, we pray that you would show us. Uh, Father, we, uh, we look forward to the day that Christ returns and all of us together will discover where we have misunderstood. Uh, and all of us will see and know even as we are known. And so we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.